look around you. God's people carry righteousness with them, both imputed righteousness and real personal righteousness as we grow in likeness to Jesus Christ. But it's not at home here. But there's coming a day when it will be at home. And we will be at home to bring in everlasting righteousness. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How is prophecy in the Old Testament relevant today? In what way did Jesus Christ fulfill certain prophecies? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom has part seven of his current series titled 70 Years and 70 Weeks. So far, we've examined the overarching theme of the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9. But after touching on the content of the prophecy, today Tom will begin to look at the focus of this prophecy and the goals behind the prophecy. You'll discover just how this prophecy applies to you today and how you're to respond to events that occur today. Are you ready to respond biblically? Let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. When we come to Daniel chapter 9, we see not only to what family the Messiah will be born, as we discover in other places, not only where he will be born, as we see in Micah's prophecy, but here in Daniel 9, we discover when he would be born and live. Really a a remarkable, remarkable prophecy that we come to tonight. One of the most astounding passages in all of the the Scripture and certainly in the Old Testament. Because in Daniel chapter 9, God reveals to us a sweeping prophetic timeline of Israel's history from the time of Daniel until the very end of the age. Now, as we've noted in the messages before, this chapter really divides into two basic parts. In verses 1 to 19, you have a prayer for the end of Israel's captivity as Daniel the prophet lifts up his voice and says, God, bring this captivity to an end. But in verses 20 to 27, you have a vision of the rest of Israel's history. Daniel first records God's immediate answer to his prayer in the arrival of Gabriel in verses 20 to 23, and then in verses 24 to 27, he unlocks for us God's future plan in the vision of the 70 weeks. Let's read this prophecy together, this vision of the 70 weeks, beginning in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. You follow along as I read. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end 
There will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, as we discovered last time, of the four views of this passage, the best interpretation is that the 70 weeks are literal years that end with Christ's second coming. The 70 weeks are literal seven-year periods of time totaling 490 years. That's 70 weeks times seven makes 490. Now, the first 69 weeks cover the key events in God's dealing with the Jewish people from Daniel's time until Messiah comes. Then, of course, as you know, the Jews rejected their Messiah in the first century, and there was a gap that began, a gap in this prophecy between the 69th and 70th week, as we'll see tonight. The 70th week will come yet in the future, and during that final week of seven years, there will be tribulation for Israel, for the entire world. And at the end of that 70th week, Messiah will come for a second time and establish his earthly kingdom where he will reign for a thousand years with his throne in Jerusalem. Now tonight we need to go back then with that overview and work our way through in detail through this amazing prophecy. So let's do that together. Here is God's future plan for his people in this vision of the 70 weeks. Gabriel begins by revealing the length of this prophecy. Notice verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed. The Hebrew for have been decreed implies that this time has been cut out and set by itself for a specific purpose. And the prophecy covers 70 weeks. In reality, the word week is not in the Hebrew text. A literal translation of the Hebrew is 70 sevens, 70 sevens. They could be units of either days or years, but the context demands that these 70 weeks be 70 units of seven years each or 490 years. Why do I say the context demands that? For several reasons. First of all, the view that these sevens are symbolic and represent indefinite periods of time, as we discovered last time, there are several views that take this approach, that view doesn't follow a normal literal hermeneutic. It's not how you would interpret any other literature. If Daniel meant indefinite periods of time, why use specific numbers like 7, 62, 1? And if they are symbolic, then the periods of time should at least be proportionate to the length represented, but that's not how they're interpreted. If you take a symbolic view, you'll find that they, they have some of the times being very short and some of them being very long. There's frankly no rhyme or reason. Seven can't represent a short time and a long time in the same verse. That's illogical and certainly outside normal interpretation. 
Another reason is they have to be years here is Daniel has been thinking about years, verses 1 and 2. He's, he's concerned about how many years, and specifically, he's been thinking about why there had to be 70 years of captivity. As I pointed out to you, Leviticus 20, excuse me, Leviticus 25, verse 4, demanded that every seventh year was to be like a Sabbath in Israel where the land was to be allowed to lie dormant. In 2 Chronicles 36, 21, you find an explicit statement that God punished Israel for not observing those Sabbath years, and he put them in captivity for 70 years because they had ignored 70 Sabbath years. So for 490 years, they had failed to observe the sabbatical year. That was followed by 70 years of exile. That is now followed by a prophecy about another 490 years of Israel's history. You see the continuity. There's a fourth reason these must be 70 units of seven years, and that is the Jews were familiar with only two cycles of seven, and that is the weekly Sabbath in which you had days and the sabbatical years in which you had years. If you try to make these sevens days, 490 days, the math simply doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the time frame here. It only works with years. So the length of the prophecy then is 70 units of seven years, which equals 490 years. Now, the next thing Gabriel explains to us after the touching on the length of the prophecy is the focus of this prophecy. Notice verse 24 again, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your city. Daniel had just prayed about both of those. Go back to verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city, Jerusalem, and your people, Israel, are called by your name. So he's just prayed about the people of God and the city of God, and in response, Gabriel tells Daniel that the focus of this prophecy is on those two things. It's on the city of Jerusalem, and it's about the Jewish people. Thirdly, Gabriel lays out the goals behind this prophecy. He tells us in verse 24 that God has six great goals that he intends to accomplish during these 70 weeks or 490 years. These goals will not be completely fulfilled until the end of human history and the inauguration of the kingdom of God, but it is during this time that God is working to accomplish these goals. The first goal is to finish the transgression, verse 24 says. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city, number one, to finish the transgression. To finish simply means to destroy, to end, to wipe out. And transgression is one of the three key Hebrew words for sin. It is a willful act of disobedience, rebellion against God's authority. It's interesting, too, in Hebrew, transgression is definite, has a definiteness to it, perhaps referring to Israel's long pattern of rebellion that Daniel has just prayed about back in verses 8 through 11. 
So the events of the 70 weeks will end Israel specifically and mankind's generally long rebellion against God. Secondly, to make an end of sin. Literally, to end or stop sin. And sin here is is another of those three Hebrew words for sin. And this word is a general word that just means to fall short of God's standard. So the events that will take place during these 70 weeks will judge sin once and for all and bring it to its end. A third goal that God has during this period of time is to make atonement for iniquity. Here's the third Hebrew word for sin, this word iniquity. The root idea behind the Hebrew word is twistedness or perversion. It can refer to an act of sin as twistedness or the guilt that you incur for committing that act or the punishment for the guilt for committing that act. Here, the implication is clearly the guilt that we have before God when we sin. To make atonement is the normal Old Testament word to atone. It means literally to cover. It describes the symbolic act. You remember in the, in the worship in the temple of sprinkling blood over the mercy seat, and the result of that blood on the mercy seat covered sin from God's view. That was the idea. And in covering that sin came forgiveness. God didn't see it anymore because of the blood. So notice the first goal is transgression will be finished. The second goal, sin will end. And both of those are accomplished through the third goal, through the atonement made, as we know, by Christ on the cross for sin's guilt. His blood offered as a covering for sin. That's the message of Hebrews 10, right? He was the ultimate covering for sin. God found a way to forgive sin without compromising his own righteousness through the sacrifice of his son. Now, notice those first three goals deal with sin, but the next three deal with righteousness. Number four is to bring in everlasting righteousness. To bring is literally to cause to come. Messiah will bring righteousness to Israel. And this righteousness is an eternal, everlasting righteousness. That means that it has to be both the imputed righteousness of justification, whereby we are declared righteous before God by the work of Jesus Christ, as well as a real personal righteousness that follows after we have been justified. So Israel as a whole then will receive both justification and sanctification. She will become a holy nation and righteousness will fill the earth forever. You remember in the new earth, it's described as a place in which righteousness is at home. I love that expression. There's righteousness in this world. Look around you. God's people carry righteousness with them, both imputed righteousness and real personal righteousness as we grow in likeness to Jesus Christ, but it's not at home here. But there's coming a day when it will be at home, and we will be at home to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. 
The idea here is once a vision or a prophecy has been completed and its purpose accomplished, it's no longer in operation. It can be sealed up. It can be put away. We could paraphrase it like this. Visions and prophecies will all be wrapped up. God will fulfill all he has prophesied regarding Daniel's people in the holy city. As one author puts it, it will be closed and consummated as a book that is fully written and sealed up. God's going to bring it all to fruition, everything he promised, everything he said. And then finally, to anoint the most holy place. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, kings, and others were anointed to set them apart for service, as well as things were anointed to set them apart for service. The idea behind the anointing was was to set them apart, to consecrate them to God. Something here is being consecrated to God. Literally, the Hebrew says to anoint or to set apart, consecrate to God, the holy of holies. Some have tried to interpret this expression as referring to the person of Jesus Christ, that he is the holy place. Amillennialists particularly like to apply this phrase to Christ because they don't believe a temple will ever be built, and that's the only other real alternative. But this expression, holy of holies, is used about 40 times in the Old Testament, and 39 of those times it refers to the holy of holies in the temple. And there's no reason here to believe otherwise. What you have in this final goal is a promise by God that there will be a future temple It's the millennial temple described by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 40 to 48. So the first three of these purposes were fulfilled in principle at Christ's first coming, but await the second coming to be totally and completely fulfilled, and the last three will be accomplished at his second coming. Those are the six goals that Gabriel says God is out to accomplish during these 70 weeks. Now that brings us to the details of this prophecy, and that is the heart of this section in verses 25 to 27, the details of this prophecy. The prophecy specifically describes several periods of time, and I want you to to see these unfold with me, these periods of time. So let's begin then to look at the details of the prophecy by considering the 69 weeks from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah comes. That's the first period of time marked out in this prophecy. Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern. Gabriel tells Daniel that God wanted him both to know and to understand this prophetic timeline. And then he goes on to say, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Notice, first of all, that this 70 weeks begins with a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, that immediately brings a question mark and a difficulty because there were actually three decrees that dealt with the restoration of Jerusalem. Which one is Daniel referring to here? 
Let me give you the three, and then we'll consider it. First of all, there was a decree in the year 538 B.C. This was the decree of Cyrus. You can read about it in Ezra 1, verses 2 to 4, as well as 6, 3 to 5. This decree cannot be the one that Gabriel means. Why? Because the calculations don't work. The 483 years he talks about runs out before Christ came. So we know that's not the starting place. But there are two others that are possible. A second is the decree in the year 458 B.C. It was the decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra. Recording, recorded in Ezra chapter 7. And the, the third possibility, and again, these, these second two are very real possibilities, is the year 445 B.C., and it was the cre- decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, recorded in Nehemiah 2, verses 5 to 8, as well as in 17 and 18. So, when you look at these decrees and you do the math, because we know when Christ came, all right, when you do the math, then either of these last two are possible, as we'll see. I'll show you how the math works out in just a moment. So he goes on, verse 25, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Messiah means, as I think you know, the anointed one. It's the same as Christos or Christ in the New Testament. And it's added, just for clarification, that he is the prince. Back in chapter 8, verse 25, he's called the prince of princes. Implied here in verse 25, don't miss it, is the fact that the Messiah would come. This is a promise that Messiah would come. Now, Gabriel then divides these first 69 weeks or 69 periods of seven years into two distinct groups. Look at verse 25 again. From the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be, one, seven weeks, and here's the second group, and 62 weeks. Now, since he chooses not to just say 69 weeks, but he breaks it down into seven weeks and 62 weeks separately, there must be some sort of a natural division of this 69 into a seven-week period and into a 62-week period. So let's consider these together. These 69 weeks are broken down, first of all, into seven weeks. That is, seven weeks of seven years are 49 years. Now notice how he puts it. In verse 25, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Now, follow along here. You've got to keep your thinking hat on with me. Since the order to rebuild Jerusalem is the starting point of the 70 weeks, it's logical to assume that the rebuilding happens during the first seven weeks or 49 years, which, by the way, history says is exactly what happened. Notice how the time of rebuilding of Jerusalem is described in verse 25. 
It will be built again, there's God's promise, but it will be built again with plaza. The word plaza literally means a wide place. Could be a street, could be a marketplace, could be a public square, and with a moat. Now, when you see that word, you immediately think medieval castle. Don't think a ditch filled with water. The Hebrew word here is is a trench. It's a trench cut, in Jerusalem's case, into the rock to increase the exterior height of the walls. If you had an ancient city, you wanted your walls to be as high as possible. There were two ways to make them high. One was to build them high and keep stacking bricks on top of each other until it was higher, which, of course, happened in Jerusalem. The other way was to lower the ground at the base of the wall outside the wall. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, 70 Years and 70 Weeks. Tom will have part eight for you next time, and we hope you join us then. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.